Welcome to episode 28 of the Untangled Faith podcast. This week, therapist Crispin Mayfield joins me to answer the question, has anyone tried to stay in their church or organization to be the change they want to see and had it work? This is a fantastic question, and we had a lot to say about it. I think that it needs to be explicit. Having that conversation with a pastor or leader to say, is this a conversation that you're open to having? I'm standing at a crossroads right now where I'm saying, do I want to stick around for five years? And we're thinking, this is really unhealthy, but we saw you staying. Mm. And so we thought, as long as you're here, that signals to us that this is a safe and healthy place. Whoa, I'm glad you said that. You may be someone's canary in the coal mine. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. From the poem Home by Warson Shire comes these words. No one leaves home until home is a damp voice in your ear saying, leave, run now, I don't know what I've become. We don't leave a place that we call home without a compelling reason. For most of us, we feel the same way when it comes to a faith community we've considered to be, or hope to be, our home. Our default is to stay. We fight for it. We're stayers, not leavers. Today, in this episode, I talk with therapist Crispin Mayfield about the decision to leave or stay in a faith community. We specifically address the question, does it work to stay at a place and advocate for change? Here's our conversation. This was inspired by a tweet. We're just going to jump onto it. It's from Brent Wagner. Has anyone ever tried to stay in your church and be the change you want to see? Tried that method and had it work for them. Because dot, dot, dot. (laughs) This is a big question. Where do you even start, Crispin? Right. If someone were to ask you that, what would be the first question you would ask them in response? Because I think it begs some clarifying questions. Right. Yeah, definitely. A good question to start off with is what's the motivation? Mm -hmm. And just for clarity, is the motivation to change the institution that you're a part of? Or is it to to maintain unity. Those are similar, but I think different. And I think people often say in organizations to change them, but they often say in churches to maintain unity or the sense I I shouldn't just Mm. leave based on an issue, which is funny, at least for us Protestants, because that's basically all we've done throughout history. Right. The whole reason Protestantism exists is the word protest and raising their hands and saying, I think something's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think there's a problem here. Um, (laughs) Crispin sees a difference in people's decision to stay between how this plays out in a church versus an organization. And I found this especially fascinating. Yeah. I don't know if that's always true, but I I think about my wife as a writer, D.L. Mayfield, who has stayed writing for certain publications. And it's not because, oh, I really want to maintain unity, but I'm going to write this article about racism. And I think that this is important work within my 
broader community. Like CT was a publication she wrote for, and she was like, I think it's really important to write about refugees and write about racism and speak to my own community. But it wasn't for the sake of maintaining unity, whereas often people in churches are like, well, I I don't want to break unity or I don't want to be divisive. Let's talk about the elements that need to be in place to be the change. If somebody decides they think they want to stay because they think they can help bring about some sort of change, what needs to be in place there for them to even have a fighting chance for there to be any change. As I'm thinking about it, it probably means what kind of change do you Mm -hmm. want? Sure. If your goal of change is a policy or theological change or some big structure change, then you probably need to know that the leadership or whoever holds power is also interested in that change. Otherwise, you're probably going to hit your head against the wall. That being said, sometimes people stay in churches where it's like, I know that this aspect of the church I would like to change isn't going to change, but I can stick around and be a person in this congregation that brings this aspect to the con- congregation. <laughs> I yeah. realize that Yeah, without- and I think sometimes people are okay with saying, you know what, I want to be here because I want people to see that there's a different opinion here, that I still love Jesus. I'm not going to deselect myself from this group. Mm-hmm. It does change the culture uh, in a grassroots way. But if you think that sticking around will lead to change at a high power level and you don't actually hold that power or position or responsibility, you're probably going to be frustrated. So one of the things, if you're going to actually help make a change, you probably need to have some sort of influence or power. I think that it needs to be explicit. Having that conversation with a pastor or leader to say, is this a conversation that you're open to having, I think is an important thing. And if they say yes, then maybe there's a discussion around this. But generally, in my experience, if they say no, they mean it. You need to believe them. Okay, but how about the times? This is something that my friend Lauren asked. Let me bring it up because this goes right with us. What do you do if leadership seems open to talking about change, but you don't see a lot of movement toward change? She said, the tweets seem to presume either leadership will be resistant to change or will work towards change. But in my experience, there's a significant gray area in between there where leadership acknowledges the need for meaningful change and say it's a priority. But then there appears to be a disconnect between the ideas of what meaningful change looks like. Yeah, that's such a good question because I think that does happen often. And there can be either a miscommunication where they think that they're doing the thing or this kind of level of appeasement. Uh, Yeah, you're right. And I think even in some ways, pastors have a lot, like everyone, a lot of things to prioritize and balance. Is this the thing that gets acknowledged? It's put on the to-do list, but it's always pushed off to tomorrow. I'm thinking of an example of that is having conversations with pastors about learning about trauma and mental health. I'm a therapist, so I've had conversations like, hey, I, I see some issues here. I know it's not ill-intentioned, but I can see maybe you don't understand trauma in a way as a pastor that would be helpful for supporting people. And they're like, oh yeah, I totally want to do that. But you know, they're also like, but I'm already working 50 hours a week. When am I going to fit in the time to read The Body Keeps the Score? Yeah. Yeah. That's being generous, but. (laughs) Yeah. What do you do if you were talking to somebody and they're saying, I'm struggling in my church. I keep having a conversation with the pastor. They're saying they appreciate what I have to say, but nothing's happening. 
I think that's really a good point. Can you look at the past? Sometimes it's helpful to, when you start having these conversations, to ask, what would I hope for? What's the minimum I would hope Mm -hmm. for? And what's the timeline that I would hope for? And follow that. The other thing that I thought about, who else can you get involved? Mm, That's good. Which can definitely come across as divisive. So you run that risk. But in my mind, getting more people involved is helpful. I remember that there was a a concern that I wanted to bring up to leadership at one point. I was setting up for church. We were meeting in a high school gym. So there's the group of us that are probably 20 people, worship team, children's ministry, and I just kind of took a poll like, hey, is this something on your radar? And 80% of the people are like, yeah. And I think that can be helpful because a lot of times pastors will meet with you and maybe they don't understand that this is something that's a big concern to everyone. And then also there can be this increased accountability around, hey, 20 of us would like to meet with you. And again, that can be perceived as divisive. But it it, it can also be a decision point for you, right? So I can just leave or I can say, you know what, I'm going to try to push this a little bit Mm -hmm. and see if there's movement. And if we hit a wall, that answers my question. Yeah. And I wonder if you could even in those conversations with whoever's in leadership, just say, you know, put a date on the calendar (laughs) where you're like, can we circle back to this at such and such a time Mm -hmm. so that we acknowledge that this is actually a real thing and that it's not going to be indefinitely pushed off. On the one hand, it's not your job to come up with a plan, but sometimes asking for a plan can be helpful. Using the mental health and trauma thing to say, hey, this is really important to me. Can we double back in two months and let me know what the plan is going forward? If you're saying this is important to you, let's double back in a couple of months and you can let me know what the plan is so that I know what you're doing. And if they're saying, I don't have the 50 hours to read, the body keeps a score. You can say, can I give you the cliff notes? (laughs) Can I help you? Like, Uh here are a few things I can bring to the table to help. So how do I know Mm -hmm. if it's worth my investment to try to stay to enact change? And I think this goes along with one of the questions that we got on Twitter who said, I have a friend who's choosing to stay to make changes, but I think there's too many changes that need to be made for me to feel like it's worth participating. The question I ask myself is, How much change would I like to see? And is it likely to happen? People have different approaches. There's so much discernment here, but I'm a big fan of pushing things. (laughs) If there is this dynamic of I'll wait and see, you can do that. But if the question is, is this worth my investment? I'm standing at a crossroads right now where I'm saying, do I want to stick around for five years or do I want to <clears throat> pack up and start investing somewhere else? Yes, I think that it's helpful to push those questions a little bit. And that's where if you sit down with the leadership and they say, yeah, we have the same goal as you, then I think it might be worth it to invest, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah, but, we talked about this a little at the beginning where you said it depends on the type of change right. that mm-hmm. you're looking for. If you're thinking, oh, me just being around, hopefully things will change. That's probably not likely. In a conversation I had with Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, they wrote the book, A Church Called Tove. Mm-hmm. He said, when it comes to making a change, like deep systemic change, it takes years. Mm-hmm. It could have been like five seven years, a lot Mm -hmm. of years. 
that is really important to think about at the outset. Understanding this is not a sprint. This is going to be a marathon. I remember talking to a coworker at one point. So another therapist, not a Christian. I was saying, yeah, we're at this church and we're trying to enact these changes to make it a healthier place. And she was like, so let me get this right. You work as a therapist all week and you have two kids. And then on the weekends, you're having (laughs) meetings with your church leadership to try to help them become a healthier church. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And she said, where do you get your needs met? And I think this comes up a lot in this conversation where it's like, I don't want to be a church shopper. I don't want to be me focused. But she said, but you need some, you need a spiritual community that's going to care for you. It's funny, this uh, Jewish atheist woman (laughs) saying, you need a church that cares for you. Yeah, It was really really helpful for her to frame it that way and for me to say oh yeah maybe maybe there are some people that are called into these different places but i don't have to save the world i don't have to be working every single day of the week in these sorts of conversations if somebody says should i stay should i go i never want to tell them here's Mm. what you should do the thing I, i love to do is just ask them questions so you just ask some really good questions and i think that's what we are doing here we're pushing back Here's some questions to consider because Mm -hmm. it's not going to be the same for everybody. And in your case, you're saying here, maybe you just do not have the emotional bandwidth, the the actual time to invest in this. Mm -hmm. And I do like what she said, that therapist said to you about, you're going to need somebody or something pouring into you in order to do this. There's a parallel here. As a therapist, I have lots of conversations with people about, do I keep this friendship or relationship or family relationship that really doesn't feel good to me? Right. And a lot of times it's a good question to ask, what would you do if this person never changed? Mm -hmm. Or like what you were saying about Scott McKnight's insight. So what if this doesn't change for 10 years? Is that worth it to you or not? It's it's interesting being in churches where there's like a question of women in leadership. And in fact, this was a, a big thing that happened here in the Portland area. A major church shifted their position on that so that they did allow women to be pastors. But there had been people bringing up this issue 15 years ago that had left the church. And they decided at that time, I can't stay here. And that change mm-hmm. did come. Yeah. But yeah, also, I think, I, I think it was a good call to say, I'm not going to stick around for 15 years yeah. to wait for that change. Yeah, it's kind of like the carrying the baton of a certain part of the the relay. This is my part. And I'm handing it off to somebody else now. And yeah. that that's okay. That's not a failure. It's understanding boundary of, I know this is what I was supposed to do for this time mm-hmm. in this place. And, and this is it. Mm-hmm. Here you go. Who wants it? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> How do we know that leaders of an organization or community are willing to make a change? What are some signs? I think that part of it is the explicit part. Some of the question is, who do they look to for influence or input? I'm thinking about most of the churches I've been a part of. I can express my concern, but it's usually a elder board of men that are going to say, here are the theologians that I read. And so thank you for your input, but I don't trust your opinion on this. I'm going to go back to my textbook of this particular theologian, mm, Yeah, which is... 
It's actually a really interesting question. What is the role of pastor? And I think that's where bringing other people into the conversation is also important. So if you yeah. have a large number in the of people in the congregation saying, hey, this is a change we'd like to see. Is it the pastor's job to say, all right, what are the people in the congregation seeing? Where might God be leading us as a community? Or... And it's not either or, <laughs> yeah. but there's these ends of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is these are the sheep, I'm the shepherd, and it's my job to be the gatekeeper of good theology. I have the degree. Mm-hmm. I have the spiritual authority here. If there are people coming to me with different opinions on different theological things, it's my job to set them straight. So this is one of those points in our conversation where this might cause some to want to turn off their ears or their brain, but stick with us. We're not saying that good theology doesn't matter. We're talking about the way different leaders approach disagreement. Keep listening. This is important. Again, this is a spectrum, but I've been in churches. This was the thing. It was Sunday morning where all Five elders got up on stage. This was obviously years ago and said, don't read Rob Bell's book. We <laughs> forbid you to read oh. Rob Bell's book, which, you know, is actually very different than a pastor getting up and saying, hey, here are the concerns. Like, this doesn't fit with the theology of, of our church. Yeah. We want to engage about this. I think yeah. that would tell you how they deal with different opinions, mm-hmm. how they deal with wrestling with people and issues that are coming up. Mm. And if they have come to a disagreement at the end and haven't decided, you know what, we've heard these people, we are still holding to this thing. How do they deal with that? That brings up one of the questions that someone asked on Twitter, which is talking about the toll of Mm. staying in a place where you're really at odds with the culture of the church or at odds theologically in some way. There are churches where there's that element of like, yeah, there's a lot of flexibility here. And I think that can make you feel more comfortable. Whereas if it's like, I'm continually going into this space and the whole approach to God or the whole approach to leadership or community is really at odds with where I am in my spirit that does take a toll over time. So what if it's not a theological thing, Crispin? Everything in some ways is theological, right? Right. What if it isn't so much about these core tenets? What if it is, I just feel like you aren't a safe place for people that have questions or a safe place for people that have come out of a faith community that have been really hurt? I actually have an, a really beautiful example of this. Okay, We left a church that we were at for about three years for several reasons, but one of them is I was really trying to repair my relationship with God and recognizing that I had this ongoing feeling like God is disappointed in me, God is frustrated with me, but I still wanted to stay a part of this community in part because of some of the values that they had. This is a big church. So I was talking with one of the pastors about my experience sitting in services, the other pastors saying things like, there's a crotchety God that's waiting to to judge you at the end of your life, so you'd better be careful. <laughs> Some of the theology I didn't totally agree with, but it's like, I see this person's heart behind it. We agree on enough. But ultimately, we decided to go, and this other pastor, she said, 
I'm actually really glad that you left because I heard you talking about this and I saw how it was impacting you emotionally. You really needed a place that was going to emphasize God's love and delight over Mm. judgment. I thought that was really, really neat that she was able to affirm me leaving her church because she could see me and see what my needs were at that time. Yeah. I had a conversation with a friend recently and I was saying, you know what? I feel like I could be a better friend to this ministry leader if I wasn't in their congregation. (laughs) The stakes would feel less high. It would feel less confrontational to just get together and have coffee and talk about where I'm coming from and where they're coming from. You don't always lose all of your ability to enact change by removing yourself from a specific portion of a community. We live in Portland and everyone knows everyone, which can go different ways, but there is that aspect of, yeah, we're, we're not leaving this community. The other thing that I want to mention there, we worry, am I giving up on this cause or wanting to see this change happen, etc. One of our current pastors, I met with him before we had even left our old church to check in and, and talk about some things. We were friends. And he said that um, he'd been at this mega church for seven years, trying to change things, trying to make it a healthier place. He said that the three years since he left and started this more trauma-informed congregation, what we've been able to do in that three years of creating a safe space, of being able to serve people, of being able to foster this healthy community outshines any little moving the needle I could do at this mega church. Wow. It's good to remember, for most of us, we are bringing ourselves somewhere. Mm-hmm. right? We're going to be investing in some sort of system. Even though if you stop investing in this system, you're going to be investing in a different system. Huh? So you mentioned in our prep, talking about Moses. And yeah. like, I had not even thought about the account of Moses. So tell me about how that relates to being a part of being the change. Let's talk about that because this is, this yeah. is fascinating. Thinking about Moses is really helpful in terms of thinking about marginalized people or people that have been harmed by systems where maybe you don't have to leave, but it's helpful to leave. And so I think about Moses who grows up in Egypt in this Egyptian oppressive culture in this community, and he ends up leaving. And it's in leaving that he starts to to recover his identity as a Hebrew, mm-hmm. Israelite. I like to think about that sometimes that Sometimes we have to leave where we've been brought up in order to heal. Yeah. I think in the last four years, there have been a lot of people of color that have said, yeah, I've been adjacent to white evangelicalism Mm -hmm. and I'm starting to realize some of the dynamics here and I need to take a break for a while or leave permanently. And that can go for a lot of things. For me, it was being an abuse survivor I need a place where a church that's always reminding me that God delights in me and loves me. I don't need to be told you're pretty terrible and you don't deserve to be loved, but God loves you anyway. And then there's this question, do we seek unity? Because that word gets used a lot, right? The story of Moses is an interesting one because he does come back, but it's not trying to uh, reconcile. (laughs) He comes back and is like, hey, this is wrong. And this is the message that God has given me. And there needs to be justice. 
Yeah. And this needs to be made right. And this oppressive system needs to end. Yeah. So often we're given the message in the church. It's your job to reconcile. It's your job to come back into this community because X, Y, and Z. But that's not what we see with Moses. Yeah. And he had a false start (laughs) where he was like, it was sort of like the lights have come on. This is wrong. I'm going to go do something. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is such a good point. And that is like both sides, right? Like uh we're like, who are you? And you are not helping. Uh huh. Yeah. (laughs) And he had to go and like learn how, like, he removed himself from that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that so much. Speaking of it as a nine, right? (laughs) Where it's like, yeah, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's not fine. And I'm going to bite your head off. I'm going to go take this guy out right now. And then the people that you were wanting to help were like, you just made it worse. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah. I love the that picture of he, he does remove himself and he meets God in the desert, in the wilderness, right? Which yeah. in, often in churches and organizations, we get the opposite message. If you leave, you're mm-hmm. leaving God. So I think that's a really beautiful picture and reminder that sometimes we need that space to develop our relationship with God and learn more about ourselves, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I'd never thought about that in that context before. So I really, I love that. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Moses. <laughs> I think it's because we can. I can relate in many ways of just taking for granted all that I have and access mm-hmm. as in, in privilege, mm-hmm. and then being like, I'm going to do something, and then realizing <laughs> I have probably some years of learning <laughs> mm-hmm. and listening to do. And I love how you talked about learning from people that have been marginalized because especially when it comes to people of color in Christian communities, I hear them saying, we have been doing this for centuries. Mm-hmm. We have been hanging on to our faith and unbundling it from all the other crap forever. And you could learn a few things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that at all, but I have for sure. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. I've really been looking to, especially Black brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. to to see how do we do this? Do you have any resources for that that you'd recommend? I'm a big fan of Drew Hart. Okay. And his book, Trouble I've Seen, is really great in terms of he's reflecting on on being a black pastor and okay. at least adjacent to white evangelicalism. I bring the voices of my people by Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes is okay. great. And she gives some really great input on ways in which women have been left out of the conversation on racial reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Lisa Sharon Harper yes. is a great, great voice. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I have found the times where I have dealt with some pain, I want to sit next to those people and listen to the people that have felt it as well. Mm-hmm. They're the least likely to be like, well, it's mm-hmm. going to be fine. Uh-huh. Everything happens for a reason. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I've been listening to Kate Bowler lately too. She is not a person of color. People that have gone through things that are hard and have no reason to try to just tie it up with a bow. have been really good mm-hmm. for dealing with questions and just the mystery of life and faith. What I really appreciate about a lot of folks, a lot of black and brown Christians 
is the clear-eyed, like, I know how this goes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that we're going to have one conference and then white supremacy is going to be gone from this yeah. church. Yeah. And so with that clear-eyed vision, what am I willing to do? What am I able to do? What do I have the energy to do? And is there a point where I say, I need to find something else because yeah. of I'm having to balance all these priorities? Somebody wanted you to talk about attachment. Your bailiwick is is attachment and faith. Mm -hmm. I'm asking Crispin about attachment here because he has a book coming out that I am excited to plug for him. He didn't ask me to do this, but he has a book coming out on the topic of faith and attachment. It is called Attached to God, A Practical Guide to a Deeper Spiritual Experience. And it comes out on February 22nd, and you can pre-order it today. And I will put a link in the show notes. You said you would love to talk about attachment and like how that ref affects staying or going. And you also mentioned what attachment does when we see something that threatens people or relationships and attachments that we have and, and mm -hmm. what our brains do with that. Mm -hmm. I was listening to your conversation with Lauren and thinking about when we look back on a institution that we are a part of and it's like, how how could I have been there? Like, how could I have stayed so long? First off, I want to say that um, that there's this, it's not quite a bait and switch, but it's this dynamic that happens where it seems like it takes about two to three years. I, I should quote my pastor on this. He's noticed this phenomenon. So this is his insight. It takes about two to three years to find out the reality of how your church works, hmm. what the real values are, what the culture of it is, what the leadership is like. And it's also about that time where you're really relationally invested. <laughs> and so you don't always get that experience of like, all right, up front, like, what are your values? And, and fortunately, some churches try to be more transparent than others about that. But even then, there's that dynamic, like we talked about, like, there's a theological statement, but that doesn't necessarily reflect how does the leadership reflect or interact with conflict or diversity of views. And then it's like, I'm three years in, and maybe there are things that I don't like about this or that I oppose. But this is my community. Yeah, this is we have this where, sunk cost. What we actually find with attachment is that when you have that relational connection with someone, the the negative things about that person and about that relationship tend to get filed away in this part of your brain that is not recognized. Mm -hmm. Dr. John Bowlby, who founded attachment theory, he did these experiments around hypnotism. So stick with me. <laughs> he looks at these hypnotists that were able to tell people, we're going to put your hand in freezing cold water but you're not going to experience it. It's not going to register in your brain. And they did it and they monitored their heart rate, physiology, and their brain actually did that. Their brain did not register that their hand was in cold water. And he theorized, I think this is what happens in relationships. If we have a parent that is abusive um, or we have a parent that's like far less than healthy because this is our most important relationship. Our brain is going to dismiss those things. We're going to not focus on those things. And this happens in relationships all the time. People will say, 
I don't know how I stayed in that abusive relationship with this toxic person for so long. And I say, well, that's what your attachment system is meant to do. And it's a helpful thing because if we didn't have that, our partners mouth smacking, eating cereal in the morning or all the (laughs) things that annoy us, right? So our brain does need to filter out the things that we that would otherwise drive us mad. And that happens, but it can be hijacked in this way where there's unhealthy things or unjust things that our brain doesn't recognize or our brain is hesitant to recognize. Yeah. Just that idea of having your hand in cold water and not realizing it is such a good image for some of us. Of It wasn't until I could see from the outside that, oh my gosh, that is a significant yeah. thing. But So our brains are working against us uh-huh. when it comes to seeing and really engaging with the fact that we are invested in a place that is unhealthy. Is there a way that we can like access that easier? Can we hack that part of our brain? Is there any way to turn that light switch on for others or for ourselves? The one thing that comes to mind is starting out with this idea that we are going to have things that we don't like about every organization and community we're a part of? And can we open our eyes to that? So just starting with the basis of, yeah, there are things that you don't like. What is it you don't like? Can I name that? And so that we can then make a decision based there. The other thing is to recognize that impulse. And this comes up most around abuse. So I'm thinking about um, someone in my family reading about Bill Hybels and the abuse allegations. And we talked to them about it and said, he's had these allegations made against him. And they said, yeah, I just think about like how he's really ministered to me. I've heard him speak. I've read his books. And we were like, yeah, but did you read the article? And they're like, oh yeah, actually I read the article. Almost as though they had forgotten it. Wow. And so recognizing that is going to be the automatic response when it's someone we feel connected to. And can Mm -hmm. we notice that, expect that, not beat ourselves up for disbelieving victims, Mm -hmm. but just say, oh, yeah, that's a normal thing that I'm going to go through. But can I come back to it and say, all right, let me look at this as someone who's maybe outside the situation. Yeah. Dr. Steve Hassan, who is a cult expert, he talks mm-hmm. about how if you directly confront people with things, their brains really will shut down. They, they, mm-hmm. they don't want to hear it. He said, often if somebody is learning about something adjacent, they'll be more interested in it. Like, oh, I'm learning about the Moonies. I have no connection to the Moonies. I have no investment in that community. Mm-hmm. And if they're reading about it and they see some things that are recognizable and familiar, then Sometimes that can turn that little light bulb on in their brain to be like, mm-hmm. oh, all these things are things that our community does. So I would encourage people, you can't often go to people that are super invested and mm-hmm. <laughs> don't want to see something <clears throat> and expect them to be like, oh, wow, thank you. Yeah. It's not because they're bad people. It's just because it's the way our brains are wired. Mm-hmm. I really like highlighting that part of this actually has a really good function and it gets misused because we live in a broken world. Yeah. I have a friend named Lydia who often talks about, I don't know where she got this idea from, but people that you want their eyes to be open to something, but they're just not there yet. She talks about just sort of putting books on their shelf. Uh (laughs) Hey, like maybe you could, and sometimes it's literal and sometimes it's figurative. Yeah. Watch this documentary about Mm -hmm. LuLaRoe. 
This mm-hmm. is fascinating. Watch mm-hmm. this. Have you watched the Nexium documentary? Mm-hmm. And it's adjacent sort of things, but mm-hmm. each one of those things puts another book on that shelf until at some point the lights turn on. Mm-hmm. Our ways of thinking about things from a psychological level happen around stories and emotional engagement with stories. That has been my experience with my mother in law is like, oh, like I really enjoyed this book, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's a way of her hearing, she read Austin Channing Brown's I'm Still Here. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, there are Black women at my church. I wonder if they maybe have a similar experience yeah. of this. And actually was able to have some conversations about, I think what she did actually, which is probably a good way to do it, which was like, oh, I read this book. I don't want to assume that you're having the same experience, but I wonder if any of this resonates with you, which yeah. was really beautiful to see. What is the impact on somebody, like physical mm-hmm. manifestations and the psychological cost of, of staying? Uh, what does that look like? For some people, being in a church and sitting in the pews and, and hearing certain just whatever it is that triggers that feeling of, am I totally alone here? Am I the only one that thinks this? Is there something wrong with me that I feel different than everyone else? If those are things that are coming up and you don't have a supportive community that is going to help you get some resilience around that, it almost sounds like the problem is you and the problem isn't you. The problem is the situation. Some people have different physical manifestations. You're putting yourself in a stressful situation. And are you seeing that stress show up in your body is a really mm-hmm. good question. What would you say if, if, cause people might not connect the dots there to something they're experiencing right. physically. Yeah. So, so how, what have you seen? Yeah. Back pain, shoulder tension, panic attacks. So you might be in a situation where you find it hard to breathe acid reflux. So yeah, yeah you have some know. physical symptoms coming up. Maybe yeah. ask yourself, what else is going on in my life? And I think sometimes it takes an outsider to ask that question. Mm. Within a couple weeks uh, of my mom suddenly passing away, this was in like 2008, mm. my dad ended up going to the doctor for something. Mm. My brother fell and broke something. And my grandmother, something happened with her. And I ended up in the ER with like tachycardia. My face was all numb. I'm laying there in the ER and I'm like, like early thirties, pretty healthy. And he's like, uh, is there some stress going on (laughs) right now? And I was just like, as a family, you have a a, a pattern of how you deal with things. (laughs) Man. Yeah. Our family was like, we're just gonna hold it Uh until our body's like, come on. Something's right. wrong. Something's mm-hmm. wrong. Let's uh, talk about a little bit about the collateral damage of staying when it comes to family, children. Mm-hmm. And I suppose there could be a good reason to stay when it comes to impact on children and a mm-hmm. bad reason. And mm-hmm. it could be a negative impact when you're staying as well. And I think somebody mm-hmm. asked about that too. How much right. harm will our kids experience while we try to make change? Right. That goes back to the question that my therapist friend had for me or coworker. 
Mm-hmm. Right? What's going to be left over for your kids? Yeah. That's important. Having you be someone that can be present is going to be more, I think that's going to be more important than them having the right Sunday school to go to mm-hmm. on a Sunday morning. Yeah. And then there's a whole question about will I keep my community? Will I not? So, you know, that's there's so that fascinating. question. Too. As, as a therapist, Crispin, as far as our kids' spiritual development, um, their spiritual formation, you would you say that you just said, that relationship with their parent is mm-hmm. going to be far more important than having a fantastic youth leader, Sunday school teacher. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is like, but we have this great Sunday school teacher uh, and my kids are loving their class. We actually ended up in this situation where we really loved our old children's ministry leader. We had that same concern. What is this going to do for our kids? And we didn't know that the church we were going to actually was such a better fit for our kids. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's something to keep in mind. I can look for a place that's going to be a good fit for my kids and my family. Yeah, I have a a good friend of mine that said, I really wanted to stay at this church. Everything about it really fit, but I didn't want my daughter to grow up only seeing men on stage Mm. and only seeing primarily men being highlighted as being able to minister and and represent God in the world. Those are some of the good questions yeah. too. What are all the different dynamics here? And also considering what are your kids picking up from church as well? So yeah. I think that's an important thing to consider. So then alongside like thinking about like the collateral damage for staying. Okay. I was thinking actually about my my in-laws, my father-in-law is a pastor and they were at a mega church on and off for a few years. The pastor had some indiscretions that were questionable. And within that was this whole question of what's about the leadership of this church, how healthy is the leadership structure. And my father-in-law felt like I need to stay, I need to help until they had friends say, we're watching this go down and we're thinking this is really unhealthy. They said, but we saw you staying. Mm. And so we thought as long as you're here, that signals to us that this is a safe and healthy place. Whoa. I'm glad you said that. You may be someone's canary in the coal mine. Right. Exactly. But they're like, as long as Christmas good, I I must be good. (laughs) They wouldn't be here if this Mm -hmm. wasn't a healthy, good place to be. Yeah. So recognizing there's this implicit endorsement of the yeah. church if you are there. Yes. And, I'm and glad I think you that up. And using my wife and I as an example, my wife is an author and I'm a therapist. And so people know who we are in the community. When we show up at church, it's bigger than us just going to church. I'm glad you said that. You did say it's often expected that the most mature way to leave is quietly and only to share your concerns with leadership. Is this always mm-hmm. true? And what's the impact of that? I'm curious to hear from you. <laughs> what, do, what do you think in your circles? Is that a generally held assumption? Do you think? We could have easily filled an entire episode just talking about this one question. My hunch is that there are different approaches to this based on the kind of community one is leaving and what the circumstances are. Regardless, I do think there is a default understanding when it comes to the evangelical faith communities that I've seen, and it is this understanding that people are to leave quietly. In this conversation with Crispin, I answer his question within the context of what I've seen with people leaving Ramsey Solutions. People want to leave well. 
They want to be able to say, mm-hmm. we left on good terms, whether it's a job or a church. There's mm-hmm. just something about being able to say, it's fine. And sometimes people will leave a church and or an organization. They'll tell them one thing because it's just too hard to say the real thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Because it costs something and they don't want to go there. And I think there are legitimate reasons for that in regard to like our experience with Ramsey. If somebody resigns right. from their job at Ramsey for their future job, their safety mm-hmm. in the community. But it also gives that place that you leave the ability to have this narrative that says mm-hmm. people leave and they're happy. And it's just mm-hmm. a few people, mm-hmm. a very small minority with a problem and they're loud, but it's just a couple of them. Um, they're loud and, and they're unhealthy or... While there is absolutely nuance to this and there is absolutely a reason to prioritize certain things when it comes to the safety of your family and the health of your your emotional and spiritual health sometimes you need to heal before you can say something out there i do think there often comes a time where and it it doesn't always look the same Mm -hmm. like to talk like freely about why you left for some people it's going to look like talking on a podcast For Mm -hmm. most people, it's going to look like in their relationships in their community when someone asks them a question, they're just Mm -hmm. honest about their concerns. Mm -hmm. And then that gives people a more honest picture of what is going on in that community. Mm -hmm. And it it doesn't mean that you're trying to convince somebody of something. It Mm -hmm. just gives them more of an opportunity to make their own informed decision. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no one easy answer to it. You know how it is, Crispin. But in our situation, we've seen it. You do do get painted as that troublemaker. And you don't want to be that person when you walk into a new community. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Where they're like, oh, that's that person. Mm -hmm. That's the person that says something if we mess up. Mm, They're dangerous. And I notice even as you're talking about this, and I feel the same way, you want to kind of say it doesn't mean that you recruit everyone and talk about everything. And here I am it, on a podcast, though I'm putting it all out there. And um, and maybe maybe it is. It might be that. It, yeah, thing. maybe you do need to stand on the corner and say mm-hmm. this is not right because yeah. people are actively being hurt. And that was something that was hard for us. Like, mm-hmm. at what point do we say something? Telling our story has evolved over time. Initially, it was very little and then a little more and then really getting our hands slapped and then mm. pulling back and then being like, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen's already sort of happened. Uh-huh. And what are the odds that something worse is going to happen against mm. what good could come from mm-hmm. speaking up? And at that point, I think that's where like I'm at right now is I know what could happen. Mm-hmm. I know the cost, but I also think that the the positive mm-hmm. that could come from it is worth mm-hmm. it. I think about that dynamic of the behind closed doors conversations that happen. We have aired really very much for so long on the behind closed doors conversation. (laughs) You know what I mean? Now I'm going to just be quiet and hope that they come around soon. Yeah. Well, right. For me, what happened was I had this theological position and I knew a lot of other people in the church had it as well. Mm-hmm. And and I went to the leadership and said, hey, I know you're not going to change your position on this, but could we alter the language to say, yeah, we recognize that believers hold a lot of different opinions on this thing. This yeah. isn't a gospel issue. This is where we come down on it. Yeah. And the pastor said to me, if you hold a different position on this, you don't believe the Bible, you do lazy theology. And you're just giving in to culture. And at that point, I was like, okay, well, that tells me I'm going to (laughs) leave. But 
what I thought about is like, but I know all my friends that are going to church on Sunday are assuming that you're holding a more gracious opinion of this than you actually are. Like, what would it be like if we had this conversation on stage where you said, if you hold this position, Mm-hmm. And I'll say it was just this one pastor who was let go later, I think, because of mm-hmm. not having a very diplomatic way of handling things. Yeah. But what would it be like if we had this conversation on stage instead of in our office where it's just you and me, right? And how many other people would be shocked to hear that this is the position you actually hold mm-hmm. rather than what they assume, which is we assume that, oh, there's like a lot of room for a lot of different views on this. I think we're behind the eight ball in having those clarifying conversations. And Bob mm-hmm. Fitana said the number of people that are at church because they have moved from community to community that actually completely agree with a pastor is really low. I don't know if they think they do or if they just are okay with not completely agreeing, mm-hmm. but there is a little bit of a disconnect there. I, I wonder sometimes if leaders realize it's not as obvious as you think Mm. it is. Having those conversations more transparently really does give more people a chance to grapple with it and make decisions. Mm. I I really want to be like, but it's okay if you don't. (laughs) Uh Right. Yeah. You don't have to do it this way. Um, (laughs) As somebody who has stood up Mm -hmm. and sort of felt like the the, face, the wrath of somebody that didn't want us to talk about the things that happened behind Mm -hmm. closed doors. There is a part of me that's like, come on guys, come on, Mm -hmm. stand up. Like, It shouldn't be just these one or two people Mm -hmm. that are losing their jobs or losing their faith communities while people are willing to just sit there and be comfortable. I want to couch it because of the two in me. I want to couch it. Right. But there's another part of this, like, I am losing patience also with the people that are (laughs) sacrificing other people for their comfort. And that's where I think that clear-eyed perspective is important. If you want to say, yes, I recognize the impact that this is having, and I'm still making this decision. I have more respect for that. It is up to your discernment, right? And people Mm -hmm. have to weigh out all these things. I think that's different than putting your head in the sand. And I think that's what can be hard for those of us that have put our necks out (laughs) to mix metaphors. If you've put your neck out on the line, it can be really frustrating to see people that at least look like they're putting their head in the sand. Yeah, I'm pulling your head out of the sand. That's what I want to do. Part of me in this Uh podcast is I'm pulling your head out of the sand. Now what are you going to do about it? Our mixed metaphors aside, it's my sincere hope that this conversation with Crispin didn't just entertain you for the last 49 minutes. I hope it inspires conversation with trusted friends, and I hope you pray about it. Ask what that next right thing might be that God has for you. Thanks for listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast. This podcast is made possible through the support of the Untangled Faith Podcast membership community. For information, go to untangledfaithpodcast.com slash member. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, it would mean so much if you would share it with a friend and review it on your favorite podcast app. I have one more episode that I'll be sharing with you that has already been recorded. And then I'm going to be spending a little time working on season four, which should be coming out. I'm hoping the beginning of February. But in the meantime, I will be sharing a few bonus things with our membership community. If you want to keep talking, you can find me on Twitter as Faith Untangled or on Facebook and Instagram as Untangled Faith. Thank you so much for listening.